Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to pick up where we left off a long time ago, it seems. It was last year, in fact. It's the Lord for his blessing. Heavenly Father, we always like to pause and acknowledge your presence here. We depend upon you, you Holy Spirit, to open the eyes of our understanding. Lord, we know tonight there are some life-changing truths in your word. We want to hear them, receive them, understand them, and put them into practice so that we could be blessed and more pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the more entertaining stories that we have about our youngest son, PJ, growing up, involved having to discipline him for something. And by the way, I did get permission from him to share the story. <laughs> uh, he was in first or second grade. He crossed the line, as kids often do. I said, PJ, go to your room and prepare for a spanking. Now, oh, by the way, hashtag Proverbs 1324. All right. Did I use that right? Hashtag, yeah, yeah, awesome. All right, so when things calm down, because you always want things to calm down, uh, went in to administer the love. <laughs> we called it the three swats, all right? So uh, what do I find? Well, I find PJ there with 14 pairs of underwear on the targeted area. <laughs> I said, what were you thinking, PJ? And he said, Dad. You said, go prepare for a spanking. <laughs> Pretty funny. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you whether I spanked him anyway. Um, I did. Uh, well, tonight in our text in 1 Kings 11, uh, Solomon needs to prepare for a spanking of his own. And it's going to come in the form of three swats tonight, uh, the Lord will raise up three adversaries here in the remaining portion of the chapter, which we did not get to last time we were together, uh, to d discipline both him and Israel, who has followed uh, Solomon in his idolatry and rebellion. And so the first 13 verses of chapter 11, if you remember, thank you for practicing on that. Um, <laughs> the first 13 verses uh, of chapter 11 that we covered last time to give you some context uh, explains why the uh, spanking is necessary, explains the offense in some detail. Uh, one writer captures the essence of what, where we were last time describing the rebellion of Solomon, especially in his later years and why the Lord had to discipline him. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, Solomon's compromise wasn't a sudden thing. He gradually descended into idolatry. He got careless and presumptuous with God and was lured away from devotion to the Lord by worldly desires. He not only married many pagan wives, he soon tolerated their idolatry and built shrines for them, and it wasn't long before he was bowing before them himself, participating in the most disgraceful kinds of practices. His love for spiritual things was replaced by a love for physical pleasure 
and material wealth, and gradually his heart turned away from the Lord. And that's the summation of the last time we were together. We saw all the wives and the concubines and the wealth and the idolatry and all of that. You know that terrible, dreadful strategy the enemy has with the people of God. He moves you from A to B. He doesn't move you from A to M in the alphabet. It goes from A to B because B is right next to A and you you feel okay with B. You can always hop back to A uh, and then suddenly you find yourself at C because it's only a hop and a step from B. You can always get back to B and then a hop back to A and then you find yourself not at R or S or T or, or Q but you find yourself at D and then E and then you wake up after taking all those little hops. And that's kind of what we saw happen with Solomon. Uh, I like Romans 12 that just says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And had he just put that into practice, uh, to just keep nourishing your walk with the Lord and nurturing uh, your spiritual life. And that, that would have never happened. This whole unfortunate chapter, in fact, Uh, would not have to have been written. So we concluded last time with these ominous words from the Lord brought to the sinning King Solomon. Uh, Verse 11 says, so the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I've commanded you, trouble's coming. And so tonight we see what the Lord meant by trouble's coming. Uh, Verses 14 through 22. Then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite, from the royal line of Edom. Earlier, when David was fighting with Edom, Joab, the commander of the army, who had gone up to bury the dead, had struck down all the men in Edom. Joab and all the Israelites stayed there for six months until they destroyed all the men in Edom. But Hadan, still only a boy, fled to Egypt with some Edomite officials who had served his father. They set out from Midian and went to Paran. Then taking men from Paran with them, they went to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave Hadan a house and land and provided him with food. Pharaoh was so pleased with Hadad that he gave him, a, gave him a sister of his own wife, Queen Tapines, in marriage. The sister of Tapines bore him a son named Genubath. <laughs> now there's a baby name for you, ladies. <laughs> Genubath, <laughs> whom Tapines brought up in the royal palace. There, Genubath lived with Pharaoh's own children. While he was in Egypt, Hadad heard that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was also dead. Then Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me go that I may return to my own country. What have you lacked here that you want to go back to your own country, Pharaoh asked. Nothing, Hadad replied, but do let me go. How interesting. We're going to stop there. And we are going to pause with Roman numeral number one. If you're taking notes, SWAT number one. SWAT number one, Hadad the Edomite. 
trouble from the south. Okay, so, hey, Dad, this man that we're talking about here in our text is the first of three adversaries now introduced uh, to come against King Solomon to bring punishment. Now, uh, the three adversaries are really human political opponents designated by God uh, that's going to make Solomon's life difficult for a purpose. And it's always God's purpose when he brings discipline to bring Solomon back to his senses. What else has worked? Blessing, kindness, (laughs) honoring him, being patient and long-suffering, gentle whispers. (laughs) It hasn't worked to turn Solomon's heart back. And as often is the case with sinning, rebellious people, once we start uh, off the path, then it takes God uh, a little bit more time and to turn up the heat to get our attention. And so this is what we're gonna see here. But first I wanna talk about this subject a little bit, the theology of God punishing or disciplining his children. In the Old Testament and New Testament, it's always redemptive. Now, um, because he loves us, and he's a father, and uh, here's the Proverbs chapter three, verses 11 and 12. It should sound familiar because we just read it, the opening service. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord, the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Now, you're saying, well, that's Old Testament. Well, New Testament writer to the Hebrews, who I believe is the Apostle Paul, uh, wrote, quoted that proverb in chapter 12 of Hebrews and then went on to say in verses seven and following, and you can show that on the screen, endure hardship as discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? Now, if you're disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness. A lot of good things come about. And peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. And so I think it's really important to have a healthy understanding about uh, divine chastisement in our lives and to realize that as Christians, you can't be thinking that every time you have hardship or an adversary raised up against you, uh, that God is punishing you for something. I think the only way to know whether that's the case is in your own heart. And the Holy Spirit, I think, will make that abundantly clear. But generally speaking, the Christian life is tough, and we have hardship, and God is using that hardship as discipline, but not in a punitive way. I had a, a professor at Bible college 
uh, Professor Rick Howard, who taught a class on Hebrews, and he used the, the passage that uh, I just read from, and he, and he said the, it, the New Testament idea of discipline is really empty of any sense of punishment, since Jesus bore every ounce of God's wrath in our place, that he, he is not punishing us uh, when he disciplines us, but he's refining us, or he's allowing something, a hardship or affliction, uh, to come in a way to deepen our character or to uh, deepen our faith or to draw us to him uh, or to use it for his glory. So uh, the idea is always a loving father who knows just what we need uh, to help us become the, the person that he's made us to be. And so we gotta also have a healthy biblical understanding of God's sovereignty. In this passage, I mean, God is going to take three people and he's going to, it says, raise them up. And he's, he's prompting these guys to come against Israel and King Solomon and uh, to bring chastisement, to work his plan. Now, that's hard to understand for people. How is, uh, where is Hadad's free will in all of this? He does have free will. Uh, God knows what's in his heart. God decides to prompt and use what's already in his heart, brooding hatred for Israel and Solomon, and God's going to use it for his purposes. Now, the word adversary there is Satan, where we get the word Satan. And so it means an enemy, all right? So God is at work there. Now, how am I supposed to think about that? Well, I think about it this way. A divine casting call where God is working in all of our lives and uh, he needs, I can hear him in my mind, I need a bad guy who wants to cause trouble for Israel and King Solomon. And uh, hey dad, tries out for the role, all right? by nourishing that hate and bitterness and anger. And God, the director and producer of the play, he knows everybody's hearts. So he's going to give the role to Hadad. Now, this Satan, as he's called, um, Satan number one, here's his story in 15 through 22. Uh, It appears that he was the survivor of the conquest of Edom Edom, uh, I've got a map of just to show you, it's in the southern portions. It's not really, it wasn't technically a part of the promised land. So from the south, the trouble came, and you can see now a modern day picture of that area. It's also where Petra is, it, it goes over into uh, the land of modern day Jordan as well. And so a real bat- barren wilderness there. So back in 2 Samuel chapter 8, uh, the Lord raised up David to conquer the Edomites, and he did so with Joab as his general. And uh, the Edomites were under God's curse, and so uh, David all but wiped them out. There were a few survivors, and your text says that Hadad was just a boy, and some of the, he was a prince, actually. He was royalty, just a boy, and some of the king's attendants took him as a boy, and they fled, and somehow they managed to escape down to Israel, which was back in, what, almost 3,000 years ago, a, a, a nation that harbored terrorists who were against Israel. And so uh, the pharaoh opened up Egypt to this royal Edomite, 
and gave him a place to live, raised him. When he was grown, uh, verse 19 says that Pharaoh gave Hadad uh, his own sister-in-law. And so he started to, to raise a family there in the palace with position and prestige. And, uh, but inside, Hadad's heart was revenge, a lifetime of bitterness, of hatred toward God's people, Israel, Solomon, King David's son. And so that's been brewing and now he's driven to return. And I believe the reason that you have this story here and you have this kind of awkward random statement from Pharaoh saying, what is it? What have I done? What don't you have that you want to leave? Why are you so driven to leave such a good life to go up into the the snake infested rocks and live there? Why? Because he's been uh, nurturing this hate, and it's going to start to drive him. Um, when one commentator said, "When we nurture bitterness and hatred, it's only a matter of time before we must find a way to express it by hurting others." Another quote: "The point of showing Pharaoh's surprise and how good." Hadad had it, is to point out the sad reality of how bitterness can control a person's life and become the driving force of everything we do. So he's willing to leave the courts of Pharaoh to go live next to sidewinder snakes and scorpions and a bunch of rocks. Why? So he can sling his arrows into the promised land and get even with uh, the one he hates so much. The New Testament application to avoid this, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, get rid of bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Malice just means meanness. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So I was just thinking, how do you avoid becoming so bitter like Hadad that you're going to end up, uh, the only really useful thing for you is to become, to be raised up as somebody's Satan. Because you're just perfect for the part. Because you're filled with that kind of stuff, bitterness. Well, I love that verse, verse 31, that just says, get rid of it. Not years of therapy needed. You really don't. I like therapy. A good Christian therapist is, is a good thing. But, but it's unnecessary. Get rid of it. Make some distance. That's all you have to do. You got it in your heart? God knows tonight. You got something there smoldering? Not good. Hey, Dad. Sorry. All right, here we go. Uh, continuing on. Let's meet Satan number two, with just a few verses, 23 to 25. Hey, God raised up against Solomon another Satan adversary, Rizon, son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadad Ezer, king of Zobah. That's modern day Syria. So now we're in the north. He gathered men around him and became the leader of a band of rebels when David destroyed the forces of Zobah. The rebels went to Damascus, kind of the main city for Syria, uh, where they settled and took control. Rizon 
was Israel's adversary as long as Solomon lived, adding to the trouble caused by Hadad. So Rezan ruled in Aram and was hostile toward Israel. Okay, let's pause there. Swat number two, if you're taking notes, Rezan. Now I have a, a picture of Aram, just a map, I believe, just to show you. Now we're talking about the northern territory. So uh, God is hemming Israel, cornering Israel, sinning Israel and their king uh, into a corner. He's got the north covered now with this guy, Rezon, and in the south with Hedad. Now, uh, apparently, when David defeated the Syrians up north there, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, a young man defected from Syria's uh, army with a bunch of troublemakers, all Syrians, okay? So one guy named Rezon gets a bunch of troublemakers around him, and since Zoba goes down, they go to Damascus, and he sets himself up as king. So he establishes himself. He just says, long live king me. And, and he's got a bunch of reb, rebel rousers around him. And so this is the guy who the Lord is, is blessing. He's blessing his free will to come after Solomon there in the north. So what I see here is sometimes the Lord gets us in a vice grip when he wants our attention. So look at this perfect from the north and in the south. And these two guys are aligned. They somehow uh, are working together to kind of squeeze Israel and put pressure on her and become a troublesome nuisance to King Solomon. Now, very interesting in the New Testament, the word for tribulation, which also can be translated hardship or trouble or trials, uh, is the word philipsis in the Greek, and, and here's, what it, here's what Strong's Concordance says about it. Philipsis properly means pressure, that which constricts or rubs together, used of a narrow place that hems someone in, tribulation, especially internal pressure that causes someone to feel confined, restricted, and without options. That's what happens with hardship, without options. That's what God is hoping we would get through our heads, that, hey, you have no options because they're, at the, they're in the north, they're in the south, there's no place for you to go but to me, right? The vice grip gets tighter and tighter until he gets his desired goal out of us. But we just surrender and cooperate with him. Unfortunately, even though we're supposed to have no options because, well, where can I go? There's east and west, and we figure that out, you know? And so we'll try, even though there's a sea there and there's rocky hills there, there's not much to go to the right or to the left, but uh, Israel will do that. And, and um, Solomon is very stubborn about this. So uh, Warren Wiersbe again, Solomon should have been reminded uh, that God was disciplining him and calling him back to a life of obedience. Uh, but he doesn't. He, he knows that as the attacks are coming from the north and the south, he knows God is trying to get him uh, to leave his uh, life of lusting and materialism and uh, disobedience. But he will not. He's stubborn. Uh, 
Now, it's really silly when God is trying to get our attention uh, to resist him. Really not good. Now, on Star Trek, New Generation, all right, we used to like to watch that when the kids were little, and I especially like the Borg, all right? There was something about the Borg that was hilarious to me, and one of their statements, do you remember the statement? We are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. Resistance is futile. I love the resistance is futile. We are the Borg. Lower your shields. Well, I was just thinking of these people. Solomon, resisting, resisting, resisting. It says that the Lord was dealing with him, yet he cleaved in love to these women. He cleaved all the more. He said, "Uh uh-uh, no, no. I see what you're trying to do. Uh -uh." Uh-uh. I can hear the Lord saying, I am the Lord, lower your shields and surrender your life. Resistance is futile. (laughs) Right? No. I I don't know. I don't want a show of hands, but I am going to ask you the question. Anybody in here stubborn? (laughs) Oh, thank you for raising your hands anyway. (laughs) Now I know. Solomon's stubborn. It's a lifelong problem. The guy in the north is a lifelong problem. Solomon can't get it. Stubbornness can work for or against you. If we must be stubborn, one writer said, let it be for God and his glory. Relentlessly standing for truth and stubbornly resisting temptation. But when stubbornness is directed toward God, we forfeit his good Blessings. Hadad's firing arrows from the south and Rezon's catapulting from the north and Solomon is cleaving, holding fast to his sin. Now, you know, what is that? Why do we do things like that? Well, the Apostle Paul, I started thinking the, how sad the pain that we cause ourselves uh, just because we're so hard-hearted and dull to the voice of the Lord. And we know he's trying to get our attention. We know we should or shouldn't do what we're doing. And yet we continue to our own hurt. Uh, Acts chapter 9 and verse 5 Paul the Apostle's conversion. He was called Saul at the time. Do you that famous line the Lord said to him? He's like, who, who is this? What's going on? And he sees this bright light, and the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why, why do you persecute me? Isn't it hard to kick against the goads? Now, that's a priceless line, because we all can understand that. The Lord is asking Saul, a goad, well, you know, the sharp instrument with the iron tip that, that would goad the oxen into going and being guided on the right path. And so the Lord was saying, I've been working with you for a while, buddy, and isn't it hard? And sometimes the animal would resent being poked and would kick back and it would cause it more pain. So the Lord would be say, was saying to Saul, I've been prodding you and goading you to the right place for your own good, for blessing. And you've been kicking against it. He says, does that make sense? Does that feel good to you? Isn't it hard to kick against the goat? The Lord is reasoning with this guy and with Solomon. 
Isn't it hard having Hadad and Rezon uh, at your north and your south and hemming you in and squeezing the life out of you? Isn't it? And he says, Solomon says, no, it isn't. Because he's stubborn. One more adversary, then we'll be done. It's a big chunk here. All right, Satan number three, 26 through 40. Now also, Jeroboam, now Jeroboam is number three, okay? Son of Nebat rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zerida, and his mother was a widow named Zeruah. Here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the supporting terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of Jerusalem, the city of David, his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were, the two of them were alone in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and alone and tore it into 12 pieces. Wow. That was bold. Verse 31. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will not, he will have one tribe. Sorry. Verse 33. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand, I have made him ruler all of the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who observed my commands and statutes. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you 10 tribes. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt to Shishak, the king, or the pharaoh there, and stayed there until Solomon's death. All righty, swat number three, Jeroboam. Now, the first two adversaries, did you notice, are foreigners. They're not Jewish or Hebrew, but this guy is. And he's not only a Hebrew, 
but he's one of Solomon's officers or leaders here. Now, uh, he rebels. In the Hebrew, it says that he lifted up his hand against the king. Now, apparently, here's what happened. Uh, Jeroboam was a charismatic, gifted man who was doing some work there in Jerusalem, and because he was so good, he caught the eye and the, the attention of King Solomon, who graciously gave him a position. Now, uh, this is interesting. You'll recall that uh, the palace complexes, when they were building for 13 years, they had that project, right? To build the palace, the temple, and all of that. Now, the terraces are called the Milo, all right? And I've got a picture of that, because we were standing right there as very famous. It, it, the Milo the, is the... the um, reinforcing of the wall and the foundations of Mount Zion, which uh, Jerusalem is uh, on top of this hill called Mount Zion. And so every three months, one of the tribes would come in and spend three months. They were conscripted. They were drafted. They were kind of like slave laborers, uh, each state. Now, they didn't have to pay taxes so much if they came and uh, built, helped build the palace complex. And so what happened here is they were building, and that's where Solomon saw this guy, uh, Jeroboam, and said, you're in charge. And so he was in charge of two of the states, Ephraim and Manasseh's turn to come in and build this terrace. He was in charge of them. Now, suddenly, everybody was getting resentful and not very happy about having to do all of that work. Um, and so they started grumbling. Now, Jeroboam was a good guy. And people started to say, hey, let's get rid of the king who's oppressing us. And we have to build and build and build and do all of this hard work. And we'll put you as king. So this is, this is the plot that's happening there. But you know what? about complaining about being overworked. Back in the day, when Israel went to Samuel, back 100 years before, they said, hey, we want a king like all the other nations have. And Samuel said, hey, you got the Lord. The Lord is your king. What are you talking about? They said, we want a king who'll fight all our battles like everybody else has a king. They have palaces. We don't. We just have the Lord. And so... Here's what Samuel said to them. He said, uh, this is what the king who will reign over you uh, will be like. He will claim, uh, he will reign over you uh, and he will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They will run out in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to work in his palace and make his weapons. And it goes on and on and on. And then he says, when that day comes, you're going to cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord's not going to answer you in that day. So be careful what you ask for and wish for and long for, right? Uh, you know, Psalms 37 and verse four, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And I heard one pastor say, 
it works in other ways too. Delight yourself in whatever it is that you're running after and sometimes he gives you the desire of your heart. And so this is what happened to them. And so they're in this predicament because they rejected the Lord as king and now they're mad at Solomon because he's so heavy-handed and we have to build his palaces and walls and what have you. And now this charismatic leader who's in charge of them is so kind and caring and listening. Hey, you be our king and we'll get rid of Solomon. And so that's what's going on here. And apparently, uh, somehow, you know, uh, God is actually going to use this plan. Now, here's what happens in verse 29. Uh, The Lord sends Ahijah, the prophet, to this guy, Jeroboam, out in a field. I'm going to call him Jerry from now on, all right? But he sends a prophet to Jerry in verse 29. And they meet in a field. And so here's what the prophet says to this guy who, who's plotting to take over uh, the kingdom, right? He says, hey, listen, God's on to you. In fact, it's his idea. He's going to install you as king. He's going to bless this, actually, And uh, he's going to make you king. And verse 30, it shows, now prophets often acted out their uh, messages, right? In dramatic ways. Why? Because we're so hard-headed, you know? I think that taking off his new robe, uh, commentators are divided. Whose robe is it? The he is misplaced. Nobody knows. Is it whose robe? Uh, I say I side with the robe of it's Jeroboam's new robe that kind of hints at I'm going to be the new king. Check out my new robe. So Ahijah says, give me the robe. I'm going to show you what's going to happen. Yes, you are going to be king, but... Like, just see... What's his name? Jerry's face. You know, what's up with this? You get 10 pieces. Two pieces are staying down here in Judah. The kingdom's going to divide. So let me show you a picture of the divided kingdom. From now on, Israel is called Israel, it's 10 tribes. From now on to the end. And Judah is made up of two tribes. And it's called Judah. And the Lord says to him, you get, the, you get Israel, but I, I made a promise to David, and I'm going to keep it. And so all the way to the end, to Zedekiah, I believe, is the last king before uh, the Babylonian captivity starts in around 586, right? All the way to the end, the Lord makes sure a relative of David stays on the throne in Judah. And he says, look, I would give it to you, but you know, I keep my promises. I told David, you'll always have a relative on the throne. And and then he says, you're going to get, your people are going to get Israel for many generations, especially if you obey me. But then he says, not forever. And what he's talking about is one day, the king of kings will sit upon David's throne and he's related to David. And he will reign forever over a converted Israel. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 Israel has a massive conversion in the tribulation period. They become a Christian nation. When the Lord returns, he reigns and rules over the whole kingdom. And it will take up all of that space and about 10 times larger borders than Israel has now. And so that's what Ahijah is saying. 
What blows my mind is that the Lord says to a guy who's gotten to a place with real far less noble uh, motives there, and he tells him, I, I can make this work. You find yourself in a place, you know, you didn't get here with really noble motives is what I'm trying to say. But you know what? I, this is part of my plan. And, and if you obey me, here on out, I'll make you like David. Let's do this. That's crazy to me. That, that is so filled with grace and awe. I can make this thing work. I'll give you your desire of, of your heart. Uh, you've gotten to this place now. Uh, follow me. Uh, bec- become faithful and I'll bless you. So somehow, we don't know how, news of this gets back to King Solomon. Now, what did uh, Jeroboam do? Go tell some of his buddies, hey, you know what? This is God's will. Ahijah the prophet, just don't tell anybody, but, you know, and you know how that goes, straight to Solomon, you know? Or Ahijah just went and told him, who knows, right? But Solomon finds out, and so instead of saying, aha, this is what the Lord told me he would do if I didn't repent. Do you remember? The Lord just told him, spelled it out in a vision to him. If you do not repent, if you do not walk with me, I'm gonna rip this thing apart from you. Then he gets word, hey, the guy is going to replace you and you're gonna lose the kingdom. Remember, that's what God told you. It's kind of God's last shout out to the guy. You fall on your face and just say, hey, I'm sorry, Lord, look at my life. Restore me, I repent. You would be reading something different here. You really would. And so uh, instead of dealing Uh, instead of dealing with his own sin, he's going to deal with Jeroboam and try to kill him. I have written down here, instead of trying to knock off Jerry, Solomon should have just knocked off sinning instead. Amen? You know, what is it about us? You know, that's how we all are. We get mad at things that we have caused ourselves. Instead of fixing the problem, we become mad at the, the thing that's reminding us of the consequences of our sin. And so uh, you have a choice when you're sinning and God's talking to you. You can either get mad or get right with God. Amen. Jeroboam escapes now the southern road back to a new pharaoh, Shishak. What a name. I don't, you want, don't want to mess with Shishak, right? <laughs> Shishak, he don't take no flack. <laughs> and it goes on and on. Then I thought of rhyming it with Zach, but then I didn't want to do that. All right, well, once again, where do they, where, where do they go? Israel, uh, Israel uh, problem with Israel, you go to Egypt, and Egypt will take care of you. 3,000 years later, still happening. Where can you hide out? You can hide out in Egypt if you hate Israel. 3,000 years later, the Bible's accurate and true, and every last word of that book is going to come to pass. Amen? amen. I needed a bigger amen there. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Okay, so uh, let's finish up with the sad fact that the guy dies. Solomon, such a beautiful life. 
and it's just going to be like, and he died. Just because of the way he finished. Okay, let's read it. 41 through 43. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Well, that's not going to last very long because we already know what God wants, right? Rehoboam's out. Jeroboam's going to be coming in. Let me close with just saying three things about Solomon's life, all right? He was a great man. He was a great sinner, and he's a great example. All right? Just a few moments. One, a great man. The temple of the Lord, are you kidding me? It was like the seventh wonder of the world. Beautiful, wonderful. It was back when he was walking with the Lord. What a wonderful accomplishment. The book of Proverbs, mostly written by King Solomon. True. He didn't apply the wisdom, at, certainly toward the last half of his life, uh, but you can't take that away from him. The book of Proverbs, King Solomon, all that wisdom. You know what God said about him back in his heyday? There's nobody more wise on earth or ever will be as wise as Solomon. A great, great Man, the Song of Solomon, a book in the Bible that really prophetically is a picture of Christ and the church. That one love, it's a love story of his first wife. The one love he just should have just quit with the Song of Solomon, man. It's such a beautiful book, but it wasn't enough for him. Ecclesiastes, 12 chapters Ecclesiastes from a Latin form, uh, which means the teacher or the gatherer. Twelve chapters of confession, a sad journal that said, really, I went looking for love in all the wrong places, pursuing things and pleasure instead of God and and his will, and I got three words for you. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. And then he closes with a confession. He says, you know what? After all of my whole life, I got one thing to say. Fear God and keep his commands. Fear God and keep his commands. Now, he was also a great sinner. He traded the Lord for his lusts. Plain and simple, one sentence. And what makes him a great sinner is the privilege that he had. He's King Solomon. He's David's kid. Wow. God did more for Solomon, I think, than any other human being. And with that kind of blessing, he betrayed the Lord. That's why he's a great sinner. All the wisdom, all that wealth, all the blessing, the visions, the privilege, and uh, he traded it in. Uh, I had a friend in high school, and I just always remembered what he wrote underneath his yearbook picture. The saddest words of tongue or pen are these, 
I might have been. It's always stuck in my head since high school. I always thought, wow, those are the saddest words. It could have been. I could have. Oh, man, Solomon. (laughs) You could have. And then thirdly, a great example. It's not enough to know the truth. You've got to apply it. One sentence. That's the example. Not enough to be smart if you're not going to live it. And if it can happen to Solomon, it could happen to you and to me. The words of the great apostle Paul were closed with 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I have it on the screen for you. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games does, goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, Paul the Apostle speaking, I don't run like a guy running aimlessly. I do not fight like, a, like beating in the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul says, you know, I, I got the gospel down. I could lead someone to the Lord. I know all about theology. I wrote 14 books of the New Testament. He says, but it's not enough to know or to have spiritual accomplishments in my past. He says, I have to live a life day to day. And it's not so much how you start. It's how you finish and cross the finish line. Three phrases. Guard your heart. Keep your zeal and finish well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if it were up to us, we would uh, just fail. We'd, We'd fall short. But since we know that each day we can lean on you, trust in you, cooperate with your Holy Spirit, uh, we know that we can finish well. We thank you for your great faithfulness to us and that it mostly depends on you, Lord, as we just put our trust in you. We thank you for what we've learned tonight. We, we know all this in our heads, but we forget it so quickly. So keep reminding us, Lord, day to day. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned on Sunday that I ran into somebody I was discipling who was really struggling. I didn't even know if they were a Christian. They were professing to be 18 years ago at a church I was serving in the city. Um, We were in the city, Barb and I, and we ran into this guy. And uh, I hadn't seen him for 18 years. I was always asking him, how are you doing today? Are you walking with the Lord? Uh, You know, back then. And the first thing that I said to him was, how are you doing? Are you walking with the Lord? And he said the same exact thing that he was saying 18 years ago. Just the same excuses. And I had two reflections. One was, 
about him, and one was about the grace of God in my life, that 18 years have gone by, and the second I see him again, I'm back to the same person I was 18 years ago, saying, hey, you, you walking with the Lord? In that discipling, caring, shepherding role of caring about somebody's soul, and I said to Barb, the grace of God has been good to me. And how did that happen? One day at a time, just one day at a time, going to midweek Bible studies, like you have done. What a smart idea of you to do. <laughs> to come through a midweek Bible study, what are you thinking? You're thinking, you know, Sunday to Sunday is a long stretch, I, you know? I could use a little coming under the word, being around Christians, you know? Uh, you're not going to fall away if you don't go to a Wednesday night study, but there's something about just every day, anything I can do to strengthen my commitment to keep my fervor for the Lord, right? And, and the next thing you know, it'll be 18 years, and you'll still be at a midweek service. <laughs> we'll still be in, in First Kings, <laughs> probably, but it's just... That God's faithfulness, he just says, walk with me. Just love me today. Just love me today. And when you get off course a little bit, you find yourself, whoops, I got to C. How did that happen? A is just, you know, you can get to Z and pray a simple prayer and get back to A. The devil will tell you, oh, no, it's so, such a long way back. Oh, no, it isn't. It just change of heart, a change of mind. All right. I'm going to preach another sermon if we're not careful. <laughs> so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we just acknowledge that Solomon has a lot to teach us, Lord, uh, by what he wrote down and by how he lived. And so we pray that that kind of wisdom would be ours and that we would each day just walk with you, to love you, to stay open, obeying, repenting, and bringing our, line, our, our life in line with your will. Uh, tonight, we just rededicate ourselves to you, Lord. We want to finish well. Everybody in this room wants to finish well. <laughs> so may that be the case, Lord, by your great mercy and grace as we follow you and obey you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.